In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents. If you feel depressed and if you feel anxious and you feel confused, you know what? Welcome to the club. Gaspacho police. Oh my God! What a stupid son of a bitch. He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. The Betches Sup Podcast. Sayonara, sucker! Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. And I'm Millie Tamarez. And this is the Betches Sup Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today, we're doing something different. We will definitely touch on the news, but I am here with Dr. Akila Kadeh, an executive coach and the founder and CEO of Change Kadeh. Also joining us is Kelsey Lindell. She's a friend of SUP and DEI consultant and marketing expert who creates tons of amazing content and trainings around disability justice and inclusion. Such an amazing group today. We are in a bunch of different time zones today, but I think we're all very hot. Yes. <laughs> Even Kelsey we're all in Minnesota. Very hot. In the literal and metaphorical sense. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're obviously sexy. I yeah. mean, obviously. <laughs> Listen, it is so humid here. I will be the first to say I am not sexy today. I am just sweaty. So <laughs> speak for yourself, Millie. <laughs> so this is probably not a good time to say it's 55 degrees in Oakland. Is no. It? Um, that's perfect. I think it's that's coming perfect. for us. I know it's yeah. coming. So. San Francisco yeah. always has to be the outlier, the exception. <laughs> that's crazy. Oh my God. 55 degrees. I can't 55 believe degrees. That. Yeah. Like well, overcast. Oh yeah. gosh. I don't think I'm going to leave my apartment for a week uh, because among many privileges, I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss today. I have AC. Oh, Millie, you're in some AC, right? Uh, yeah, I'm in AC. The room's not AC right now, but um, <gasps> oh yes, that is always the challenge with podcasting. Is that you got to turn off the AC? Turn off the AC. You got to turn off the AC. So July is Disability Pride Month, and I've sort of been talking to Kelsey and Dr. Kaday um, about you know a couple different topics, but obviously want you two to kind of like lead the way here. It's always a good time to talk about disability rights and inclusion and justice. So I think we'll start with some general topics. And then I invited our audience on Instagram to ask some questions. I think they ask good questions. I'm curious if you think they're good questions. We can kind of uh, unpack them. But I want to start with the idea, two ideas around disability rights and disability pride. Kelsey, when we were chatting before, uh, you referenced that you and your work use the phrase disability justice uh, instead, I think, of disability rights. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Right. So, I mean, I do definitely operate within the disability rights space. Disability inclusion is more what I kind of try to steer away from because inclusion can be very tokenistic, very formative, whereas disability rights is actually a framework of viewing disability rights that was um, developed by a group of disabled, queer, BIPOC individuals who were activists. And there's 10 different main principles like intersectionality, leadership of the most affected, uh, anti-capitalism, cross-movement solidarity, wholeness, sustainability. There's there's 10 really juicy topics that we need to like think about and really focus on because, I mean, the main thing is a lot of people, when it comes to disability inclusion, they will only center the experience of white disabled people. And I always really want to lift up other marginalized communities 
because disability is not a monolith. We live multi-issue lives. We, people who are disabled, like, I mean, there's a much higher percentage of people who are disabled within the LGBTQ community than non-LGBTQ communities. And so, and same thing goes with um, other races and things like that. So I really view my work as an opportunity to elevate other voices. And so I always want to make sure that I'm practicing from that lens of disability justice because I'm a white, cisgender, straight, disabled woman. And the privileges that I have really, I mean, for most of my life until I was in my 20s, I didn't even want to identify as disabled. And I could get away with that because of the privilege that I was kind of given in my life. So that's that's the main difference between those two, if that helps. Um, I don't know if Dr. Kaday has some other things to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think intersectionality is really important because we have people who are disabled, who have visible disability, invisible disability. Um, I am a Black disabled woman. Sometimes I have a cane. Sometimes I don't have a cane. And even that treatment is different. I'm also disabled and cute. I'm beautiful. And I love it. And people look at me and they're like, well, she can't be in pain. That, or it doesn't make sense. Or why does she need assistance? Because she has everything else, you know, um, going for her. I think the other important thing to talk about is um, equity, not even equality, equity, right? Be, and we talk about the variants of disability. It's different for every person. There are people who are disabled who do not want help. There are people who are disabled who do want help. There are people who want both, right, depending on what's happening for them. And so we have this idea that it has to be one way. And it's so infuriating. Probably like Kelsey, just like me, I pre-board. But if I don't have my cane, it's a whole issue. By law, you can ask me what my disability is. If I say I'm disabled and you call for those with disabilities to pre-board, then you let me pre-board. But because of the way I look or how I dress, because I may have my Prada loafers or whatever, I can't be disabled. And so to make things easier, I just take my cane to the airport. And then all of a sudden, because there's a visual cue, and I think it's another part of intersectionality, there's a visual cue, people will be treated differently. Now, the last thing I will say is my pain is not believed because I am a black woman. Hmm. Not believed at all. Yeah, Millie. No, I was going to say, like, thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, Kelsey, you know, like disability and like we talk a lot about intersectionality with feminism and and of course with the LGBTQ community. But like it is so illuminating um, for you to talk about intersectionality with um, disability rights. Kelsey, you saying you have uh, straight white woman privilege and obviously Dr. Cadet saying you have pretty privilege. <laughs> But no, I think that's such a good point. And like when we start framing our minds like that, too, um, it helps us contextualize the world. And yeah, there's just all this thing of. I mean, you know, I mean, we talked about this with uh, Julia Salazar yesterday. I mean, I don't want to talk too much. But yeah, it's just like um, if you advocate for disability rights, right, if you're disabled, but you have Prada, you know, or if you're a socialist, but you have a nice dress, like doesn't is that doesn't count, you know, so it's just really interesting points. I just I just want to highlight that point because they're they're not, you know, not the, the same thing. Like. I can still live a good life. I'm just going to live it differently. Mm. And I want to share that three days ago I was in the ER because my pain is out of control. I have my 
fifth rare disease, which is ankylosing spondylitis. It's a rare arthritis of the spine. The spine fuses together. It hurts the, the lower back, shoulders. It's awful. And I went because my pain was out of control. Everything I know from my three different pain doctors I have, it wasn't working. I couldn't sleep. So I'm like, you know what? I got to go to the ER. It's Sunday. That's the best I can get. I kid you not. The ER doctor said, well, you can ambulate well, so we're not going to do any imaging. Because I could carry, and he said this, I could carry a tote bag and get up and down, albeit slowly, with my cane. So because I could take care of myself, I wasn't in enough pain. And so I had to explain to him, it's like, I live by myself. I am my primary caretaker, and I'm doing all that I can, and I'm being penalized for still having to exist in this world. He gave me a shot of morphine IV, and then they just discharged me. Now, if those of you don't know, morphine is an opioid. You cannot drive with it. They asked me how I got there. I said I drove myself, and they did not care. But because I used to work in healthcare, I used to be a healthcare administrator, I was pre-med, I knew I had about 20 minutes before it fully metabolized and 60 minutes to my peak, and I lived 10 minutes away from the hospital. I was definitely high for the rest of the day, but again... That is how pain is not believed. And we throw in that intersectionality on top of it, of being disabled, of being a woman, of being a black person, that I'm constantly dealing with unfair treatment with things that are supposed to protect us, which is why we celebrate Disability Pride. It's the signing of the American with Disabilities Act month. Kelsey, you've had this experience, a different experience in the emergency room as well, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, uh I'm what I like to call a triple slash quadruple threat. Um, I was born <laughs> physically disabled, so I have a cognitive disability. I'm missing um, half of my left arm. So that was the first type of disability I was ever diagnosed with. My parents had no idea, and they were, like, really kind of thrown. Um, and then I developed a chronic health condition. I have endometriosis, which is an extremely painful condition. And in my now husband and my, like, first six months of dating, um, we were in the hospital literally every single month because I would just be in so much pain. I'd be throwing up and people, they didn't know what was going on. And then I was hit by a car while I was walking. Um, Mm. I'm from Minneapolis. So it was right after like everything with George Floyd had exploded here. It was just like a really crazy time. People like weren't paying attention where they were going at all because our city was just in shambles. And I was in a crosswalk and somebody played Frogger with me and they hit me with their car. And so now I have a TBI um, and I have severe mental health issues. So, uh, th- yeah, I'm, I've dealt with being in the hospital a lot and people either not knowing, um, same thing, just being like, oh, we don't know what's wrong with you. We're going to send you through all of these things. Or the, oftentimes, I don't know if you've ever dealt with this, Dr. Kaday, but like they will not even look at my charts and run one million painful and expensive tests. And I will be like, I know this isn't it. Like, I know this isn't it. If you look at my chart, I was here last month. Please help me figure this out. And it took over six times in the hospital to be diagnosed before somebody was even like, have you thought about endometriosis? Like it took like one of the nurse practitioners to be like, hey, I've seen your chart. It looks like you're here a lot. I know the doctors aren't saying this, but have you thought about looking into this? Went to a specialist. Turns out that's exactly what it was. And so, you know, I often talked about there's there's multiple lenses that you can view disability through. So there's the medical model, the social model, the charity models, the 
there's literally so much ableism in the medical industry that one of the lenses that people choose to like define with how people view disability is the medical model, which basically is like, let's just fix these people quickly and then get it done with. And then we don't have to change the way society functions. Crazy. Cause the medical model should be the good one. Like it right, sounds yeah, like the yeah, brand yeah, name yeah. one that should be good, but it's actually the scary one. Oh man. But sorry, it's important to note the medical model is never the good one because yeah, it was literally founded racism. off of yeah. racism, you know? Yeah. So, you know, and, and that's why my pain isn't believed. That's why people with disabilities pain isn't believed because we were sent to asylums for a good portion of this medical, you know, foundation and, and which we have. Um, and just to share and be transparent with Kelsey, I have Alport syndrome, which is a rare genetic condition that affects my kidneys, my hearing, and my eyes. Um, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, so my body doesn't make enough collagen. So my joints will dislocate, things will be swollen for no reason. I bruise easily. And there's so many comorbidities that go along with that. I have interstitial cystitis, which is painful bladder syndrome. I mentioned ankylosing spondylitis, um, fusion of my spine. And I also have coronary artery spasms. So my body thinks it's having a heart attack every day. And I live with the symptoms of a heart attack, shortness of breath, pain in my left arm. And then I can have an actual heart attack. So just like Kelsey and me, we have to monitor our stress. Because the more stress we have, the more flares or pain we can feel because of how our body responds. The very system that's supposed to take care of our health is a source of stress. Yeah, with my newest diagnosis with ankylosing spondylitis, the next available, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, top provider, the next available rheumatology appointment is November 23rd, and that's a video appointment. They won't even oh touch me. And, and you're so in a lot of pain right I'm now. in a lot of pain, right? Like right now, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm currently on opiates, not right now, because I wanted to be present. Um, but yeah, so it's that type of system. So here I am, knowing how to, working with health insurance, working in healthcare systems, I have a provider, and I think um, I would love to hear from Kelsey too, but I have a provider who's always believed my pain, because she's known me since before. And I'm like looking through all the networks I have with my PPO <laughs> to find who's the next available for the MRI, who's next available for rheumatology. And that in itself is exhaustive and stressful. So I'm literally sitting in pain knowing that if I go to the ER, it's a source of stress. I have to wait for the system. The thing that can help me, the very thing that can help me is taking forever. And not only does, is that obviously incredibly uncomfortable, but as you're talking, it's just there's no there's no way to be equal with a person not going through that in a professional space when yeah. you have to kind of deal with that. So how do you kind of negotiate that personally, Kelsey? Do you do you interact a lot when you're working on projects and updating people? Where you know how do you approach that? Do you have to be, I, you know, like I think about you know when I cancel a meeting, I just cancel a meeting. And I'm wondering if you sort of think like how much into depth of my personal journey and my to whatever extent you would characterize parts of it yeah. as painful. I don't want to project that. So how does that sort of interact with your with your professional life? Yeah. I mean, it's a privilege because I am a contractor. I'm a consultant. I work with clients on their terms, but also my terms, right? So we have like a scope of work and I have to work around that, right? I have to build in so much margin for myself and so many sick days, which again is a blessing because I'm a contractor. Most people can't do that. Like that's, that's so rare. And I want to acknowledge that because most people with disabilities don't have that luxury. Um, it's really hard. I remember, so before I was doing this 
full-time. Now I've got my DEI business. I'm also a group fitness instructor. And someday I'm going to get Millie into a bar class. <laughs> I'm not opposed to bar. I probably said something passively, but I will say I will die Millie's in a lot of hills. Millie's inclusiveness stops at yeah. a bar class. No, okay. no, no. I will die in a lot of hills. Bar class, that's not a hill I'll die in. I will take a class, Kelsey. <laughs> we'll I take will. one of your classes. <laughs> We're going to set it up. But I teach from home now. I have my own home-based business. So, I mean... Do I worry? I worry a lot that like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm letting my clients down. If they have a membership with me, if I have to cancel a class, I worry a lot about that. But I remember before that I was working at one of the largest chains in the country and I was one of their lead instructors and the amount of opiates I would have to take just to get through a class was just wild because I was worried I was going to lose my job. Like I was trying to build up my like production business, my marketing, like career. And I, so like, I didn't have a ton of seniority in that role. So I was like, okay, cool. I want to really build up what it is that I can do in this world. So that means I have to have another job on the side, which means that I have to teach all of these classes. And if I don't teach these classes, I can't pay my bills. And then it affects my family Mm -hmm. life. And it just, it all compounds so much and it's really hard. And so I am really privileged now, but like, it was not always this way and it is not this way for many, many people. So now does it make me stressed? Absolutely. I'm privileged to be able to build it in margin. That's not the case for most people. And that's why I'm really passionate about people creating accessible workspaces because I know that that's that's where the majority of people have to work. Like building their own business is just not possible for a lot of people because of the country that we live in. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's probably no coincidence that both of you work for yourself, but you have to put in that much extra effort. Like that's not easy. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift, because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click gift mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. We'll get to sort of a lot of our audience had questions um, about workplace, but hearing you both talk about this, it's something that you should be very proud of and obviously have a tremendous amount of pride in, which brings us to, Millie, do you want to take the first question? Yes. So what does disability pride mean? It's important to note that my disability started five years ago. And so I'm new compared to Kelsey, right, with what disability means. So I'm still figuring stuff out, right? Um, So for me, disability pride means keeping amazing, which is my slogan. Like we are able to do some really epic, awesome, amazing shit amongst a world, a system, a country, a place, a healthcare system that really doesn't want us to succeed. And so I think for me, when I talk about disability pride, it is helping normalize the conversation with non-disabled folks. Note how I didn't say ableist, non-disabled folks to bring us into the conversation for it to be 
normal, and I hate that word, for people to also have disabilities. And so to come through to say like, you know what, I can celebrate you, I can connect with you, I can feel community with you, I can feel love for myself, even when it's hard to get from other people, is a source of pride um, for me. For others, it's a continued call to action. Like, what are you doing? Are you saying non-disabled? How are you advocating in your workplace to make sure that you have fair hiring and that you are doing things to make sure that the workplace is accessible? Not just someone gets headphones or uh, a reader for something, but your retreats, your talks, your events are also accessible as well. So it's that call to action. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree with all of that. I think also for me as somebody who has been disabled my whole life and was, I mean, I talk about this a lot. I had like no friends growing up that were consistent. I got bullied all the time. Uh, Kids would call me a T-Rex and run away from me on the playground because of the way that my arm looks. It kind of does look like a, I mean, to their credit, it kind of does look like a little bit like a D-Rex arm, but it was, it was horrible. No, we're not giving bullies points on this podcast. <laughs> you're not. You cannot. <laughs> I know. I hate, I get I bullied online that, too. And I'm just like, damn, they did have a point. But... Visual of like what it yeah. looks like. Right. So it does, it, it was horrible. And I refuse, like if people would, like my dad one time, he was like, well, like Target does a really good job of representing people with disabilities. Like they always had greeters at Target. And like that was kind of like the expectation of like, not like, listen, I'm never going to send this podcast to my dad because he'll feel horrible that he said that. He probably doesn't remember because my dad also <laughs> always believed in me. But like, um, it, I hated, I hated everything about being disabled. And I remember being so mad at him for saying that, not because I didn't think that's all he thought I could do. It was that he thought I was disabled. And I was like, I'm not disabled, dad. What are you talking about? I just have a different arm. And it wasn't until I got into, like I said, like my early 20s that I was like, actually, there's nothing wrong with being disabled. The reason that I don't like this is because the way society treats disabled people. Exactly. And that's the social model viewing of disability is that so like the lens that we're talking about, the medical model versus the social model the medical model, let's say there's somebody who is disabled and they are in a, they're a wheelchair user and there's a building that has a bunch of stairs and they can't enter it. The medical model would say, oh, there's something wrong with their legs. Let's fix their legs. Let's do experimental treatments to fix their legs. It doesn't matter how painful it is for them. We're just going to fix their legs. We're not going to bother to change the way that society caters to this person. Whereas the social model would say, let's put in a ramp. And so mm. it's kind of like that mindset shift happened for me in my early 20s. And so for me now, I don't, I'm not afraid of my disability. I'm not ashamed by it. And that is revolutionary. That is revolutionary. That is radical. I mean, a lot of people don't even realize that there was a series of laws and the last of these was only un- overturned in 1971 called the Ugly Laws that forbade disabled people from being seen in public. We couldn't hold jobs. We couldn't participate in society. We couldn't go to the grocery store. Like, I mean, maybe... Maybe some could, but they could legally be required to not enter the public sphere. That's ridiculous. And so being proud of being disabled and being like, no, this is part of me and you're going to accept me and I'm here and I'm not going anywhere is revolutionary for disabled people. And so that's for me, that's what disability pride is all about is saying like, I am who I am. I'm not going to hide it and you're going to deal with it. And we're going to make society accessible for all people, including people with disabilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm again not like uh, trying to center myself and 
the disability conversation, but a lot of the things that you were saying really resonated with me and my fatness and my weight, you know, like some to some people like being overweight is a disability. And, you know, that's I know like a very nuanced conversation, but even just again, like with the medical, the social and all this stuff of like and even how I viewed myself and my body like, yeah, like um did not want to be considered fat. And I, I'm sure a lot of people, re it resonates with that. So even though it's, you know, again, about disability rights, like that model, I'm sure, has been. And, you know, your thank you so much for your transparency. I'm like, you weren't always, you know, I think a lot of people, the criticism of the left is that everybody's like, oh, I was here this whole time. I was always woke. I always knew what's going on. And like, it's really important to acknowledge that, like, it took, you know, the, the awakening that it took within you, you know? So I don't know. I think that was really great. Thank you so much for sharing. But Millie, you're talking, you're talking about intersectionality there yet again, mm -hmm. which I think is important because, you know, Kelsey's absolutely right. We are an act of resistance. And unfortunately, I have to carry that as a woman, as a mm -hmm. Black person, and as a disabled mm -hmm. person. And that weight is not, you know, easy to carry, and I like distinctly remember when I started having problems, I had a temporary disabled placard in California, it's red. And so every six months you have to get it renewed. And I was renewing it and renewing it, renewing it. And finally, my primary provider sat me down and she said, you're disabled. You need a blue placard that is automatically sent to you every two years. And I begrudgingly did it. And I got my blue placard after standing in the ADA line at DMV, our, the place we all live. It's a lot you better. You have to stand like in a line. <laughs> you do, but there's a there's an ADA line and it's a yeah. lot better. I will yeah. say it's a lot faster. But I sat in my car and I just cried because I looked at this thing and I realized the stigma that comes from that, right? And then I had to realize, I'm like, well, no one's going to date me now because I own a business. I'm a doctor. I'm a homeowner. I own my own car. Like I can take care of myself. Who is going to want to deal with the ER trips? Who's going to want to deal with the pain? Who's going to want to get my heating pad? You know, who's going to want to deal with all of that? Because we don't see love stories, you know, with people with disabilities. We don't see that out in the world. And society, if they pity me, then I don't want to be in a relationship where someone's pitying me. I want to be seen for who I am as a proud Black disabled woman. As you mentioned, Dr. Kadeh, you this started for you about five years ago. It must have been such a frustrating trans an illuminating transition interacting with your with your networks and friends and family. Mm -hmm. Just and it, I, I'm sure it kind of it kind of still is, I suspect. I mean, there's family members that I have that still don't believe it because a lot of it is like visible. And I'm the one who's known to be independent. And so because I can take care of myself, I, I don't necessarily need help. What they're forgetting is that I'm in a whole bunch of pain 24-7, you know? Um, and so it's become easier as they see me with my cane. You know, they'll want to help me out more. My twin sister totally gets it because twin life is the best life. Um, but, you know, even sometimes with my mom, I'll, I'll throw that in there with you, Kelsey. <laughs> even with my mom, um, the first three times I went to the ER, she didn't even come. Because she was just like, oh, you're fine. But I, I wasn't. And there are times where you do want family to be there and you don't want to be alone in those places. So it wasn't until the third time where I was like, don't worry about it. She came and she went to the wrong ER and found the right ER. But, you know, she didn't she didn't believe it. And so I think that's the other part of it, too. When we talk about disability pride is that when we are like, OK, this is our life. This is how we're living. 
it puts a strain on relationships because they will feel bad for us. I wish you weren't in so much pain, you know? So mm. yeah, that's, yeah. I didn't even think about that kind of burden trying to, to alleviate that for family members as well. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. These are, you know, shall we say, not great times for for a lot of people. It's a it's rough out there, folks. What it's do you rough. Mean? There's a lot going on <laughs> that from you know the the heating of our planet to the degradation of our uh, reproductive rights. A lot is going wrong in the world right now. It's a challenging time. How are disabled people left out of conversations surrounding major world catastrophes? And how do things like climate change and reproductive rights specifically impact people with disabilities? I'd love to talk to you, Dr. Gay, about the reproductive rights part because we worked on a video on that together. Uh, Kelsey, do you want to kind of start with how they're left out of these big, you know, planet-wide issues? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that this is like why I got into media marketing entertainment. So before I started working in marketing, I worked in advocacy and I worked with organizations that are international all over the world that worked with local organizations and were like, hey, what do you need to help your local disabled communities? So it was kind of like the first glimpse I had into like, okay, how can we help communities that need support without coming in and being like, here's the white people way to do it. Um, so, but what I noticed time and time again was that in these circles, like because they were international organizations that focus on many issues, disabled people were always left out of the conversation and they always got the least amount of like funding from organizations almost because it was kind of like, well, we're not, they're not, they're not seen, they're not portrayed in a lot of our projects. They can't, they're not, they're not even here. So why does it matter? And it's like, well, are they not there? Are they not there because they can't access your programming? Are they not there because of the stigmas that surround people with disabilities? So mm -hmm. I came back to the States to start working in this media marketing entertainment industry because I knew that we needed to change the way that people with disabilities are seen because they're not even included in issues about civil and human rights. So, I mean, I wrote an article for SUP, and I'm sure you said you're going to talk about this, but how both sides of the aisle when it comes to reproductive rights on TikTok were so ableist. They were mm. so ableist. The right was saying like, oh, well, we just want, you know, of course, I mean, the right obviously does nothing to help people with disabilities. They don't, right? They're like, they'll use it as like a talking point of, oh, they're just going to quote unquote murder all the babies mm -hmm. with disabilities. And then they do nothing for us once we're actually born and act 
actively go against things that would help us progress. They like try to push forward subminimum wage. They try to slash special education funding. They try to slash Medicaid, all of these things that would really help us. But then on the left side, you had so many people making TikToks that were saying like, oh, here's me. I don't know if you've seen like the Horace filter on TikTok where yeah. it's like, this, like little yes. baby or whatever Yes, that's dancing. And the they're like me dancing with my disabled baby that the Supreme Court forced me to have. They yeah. were everywhere and they were getting millions of likes and comments and it's just horrible. And I really think that this happens because people with disabilities aren't even included. So then I was like, okay, let me research because I'm not hearing anybody talk about the disability community with this. So I looked into it and the maternal mortality rate of people with disabilities is 11 times higher than those without people with disabilities. And that's not including intersectionality of race. So when you have somebody black and disabled, then you have the medical racism and the medical ableism coming together and it's going to create a lot more issues. Additionally, people with disabilities are seven times more likely to experience sexual assault. So this is horrendous. Like we need these, we need access to these types of things. We need access to abortion. In 3%, the Bureau of Justice says that 3% of sexual violent crimes against people with disabilities are investigated. 3%. So even in states where it could be legal if you were raped, who's going to look into it? Because of what Dr. Kade was just saying about how disability people with disabilities are portrayed as being asexual, as like not able to have meaningful relationships. And so people often don't believe us when we say like we were assaulted. You know what I mean? And personally, I mean, as a survivor myself, like I I can't imagine what that would mean for me. Like, I can't imagine what that would be like of, like, going through the whole process. Like, people are shocked when they find out that I got married. People are like, oh, that's so good for you that you could do that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm hot as hell. <laughs> like, sorry. Mm-hmm. But like, you are. You are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, no. But, my, but also my husband's a babe. Like, I didn't just, like, pull in, like, I wasn't like, okay, the one person <laughs> yeah. that'll have me, I'll take them. I'm like, no, I had a bunch of fuckers that I had to get rid of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And I was So, uh-huh. anyways, um, it's it's really frustrating. And then when we think of things like gun violence, right, like, like the issue with the mass shooting in Uvalde, right? What happens – what are active shooter drills like for children who are in wheelchairs? Because let me tell you, it's exactly. not good. Oh, God. Special ed teachers are told to pick up the children and run. Wow. That's, that's it. That's the solution. That's the best we've it's come up with. It's the same for fire drills yeah. too. Yeah. Fire drills, bomb threats. Your instructions are to wait at the stairwell yeah. or wait for someone to help you. What does that tell you about your life? Yeah. Why aren't there instructions like you're assigned a buddy, two buddies, in case someone isn't there and they're responsible for making sure you get out? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And those trainings, I mean, I went to, I've never been told, also look around to see if there's anybody who needs assistance. I've no. never personally been, been told We think that. about like climate change, right? And how, I mean, climate change is going to affect everyone. Obviously, natural disasters, like let's think about like Hurricane Katrina or massive hurricanes that have happened and people are like, oh, just flee. How is that going to work for people who are disabled? People who have to rely on public transportation, people who are, it's literally legal to pay us less than minimum wage in most states. Like it's, how are they just going to pick up and find a new job? And what's from what savings? If disabled people have more than $3,000 in savings, they'll lose their benefits. So how are they going to do this? Right? Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's systemic and people with disabilities are not spoken about in these conversations and it's horrible. So that's why I'm so 
passionate about like making sure that we are represented in the right way because I really believe that people just, I mean, disabled people make up between what, depending on what site you look at and how disability is defined, 15 to 25% of the population. And disability is the only marginalized community that you can join at any time. And if you are privileged enough to live into old age, you will join us. It is not a matter of if, it is when. And so it's like we are represented in media marketing and entertainment 3.1% of the time, despite being, let's average it, 20% of the population. That's unacceptable. And most of the time we are portrayed either through like negative stereotypes or inspiration porn. So people don't get the real picture of what it's like to be disabled. So therefore we're not spoken about in conversations about this. I'm going to let Dr. Cadace because I'm getting really <laughs> fired up and I just want to scream because I get so frustrated. Yeah, <laughs> I want to um, plus a million everything that you're saying. Like I'm listen, people are like, you're so inspirational. I'm not here to be your inspiration. I have to get up. I have to do what I have to do. You know why I have a business? Because that's the best way I can go to all my appointments. I have two physical therapists. I have 13 doctors. I have acupuncture. I have massage. And the list goes on and on of what I have to do to stay upright. If I had a nine to five job, I wouldn't be able to do these things because I would view it as someone who's not a productive worker, someone who's not committed, someone who can't be there to meet the hours right um, of time. So Kelsey said a lot. And I wholeheartedly agree with all of what you said for so, so many reasons. Um, I will add to it talking about just continuing with reproductive health that it is important to note that there are some people who live with disability where getting pregnant is detrimental, like it cannot happen. So abortions are needed. You know why? Because they have sex. Mm. And it's their choice if they want to use birth control or not, because if non-disabled people can use birth control, not use birth control. Disabled people should do the same. It's like, how do disabled people get pregnant the same way we all do? First of all, let me tell you, sex is great for me. Sex has this thing called serotonin. It's Mm. a stress reliever. It gives you endorphins that make your body feel better. Like it is like, if I could just get prescribed sex, my (laughs) life would be a lot better. You know, yeah. yeah, because the other thing to talk about with sex is that you have touch you have compassion. You have someone who's treating you the way you should be treated, which is loved, held, caressed, kissed, whatever that is. Mm. It's one of the times where you can feel normal when you have those moments of intimacy because of society feels that you are not deserving, right, of those things. Mm. And so because disabled people have sex with visible disability and visible disability, I also have major depressive disorder, Kelsey is so high, um, because living in pain is a cycle that sucks. Um, We can't say that we need to have these things for non-disabled folks and then say it's different for disabled folks. doesn't make any sense. The other part are the systemic things. So Kelsey mentioned that if you have 3,000 in savings, you lose benefits. And a lot of people have to be on benefits because they can't be in a workplace that supports all the care that they need. Mm. To be on benefits, it essentially means you are living a very low income life. So yes, you may have, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, depending on what you are, a combination of both. But you can't live your life to the the fullest. So then if you get pregnant, you also could potentially lose your benefits as a result of that. Because you only can have so much money. So and you can only make so much if you are able to work too. But you're obviously gonna have to make more money if you have a kid, because kids are expensive. And so it's done to work within the system they're telling us to live in. 
disability benefits, but you now you have to have your kid. But if you have your kid, you could lose your benefits for whatever those varying factors are. And that's not fair. I want to have a kid and um, I don't have a partner right now, so I may have to do it by myself. And doing it by myself is either IUI, interuterine insemination, or IVF. And you have to do genetics testing, so genetic panel, which is how I found out I have another rare thing. So that was so fun. But they match you with sperm to make sure you don't have certain things. And I had to communicate. If my kid has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, potential for that, ankylosing spondylitis, I'm still going to have that kid. I still want to match with that person because that whole process is designed so you don't have a kid with disability. But if I'm amazing and great and living my best life, I can show my kid how to also live with disability. That's like not a deal breaker for me. And so I think that's the other side of the conversation as well, that, you know, you can't still have a fulfilling life. Yes, we have challenges living with disability. I had a friend in middle school had the same thing that Kelsey has with your arm. And we saw all of the bullying that happened for him. But myself and my twin sister, we always made sure that he felt safe. Like I didn't realize how powerful that probably was, you know, for him until I also became disabled. But I think when we talk about the environment, we talk about reproductive health, when we talk about disability justice, we're really talking about a lot of how society is determining what should happen for us for not having the lived experience of what we go through. Instead of listening to the experts, me, Kelsey, everyone with a disability of what is needed so that we can thrive. The idea that like, and Kelsey, you sort of like touched on this concept, you know, a little last week and maybe involuntarily, but the (laughs) idea that being disabled is bad and negative is an idea that runs so, so deep in our culture and, and probably every every single society. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of, it looks like there are a lot of parents that and friends that take what they think is a, what they understand to be a positive approach of um, maybe undermining the disability or, or, or dismissing it as if it doesn't um, impact the person's life. So I'm so curious what you guys think about, you know, how do you balance being encouraging um, with with being really frank about how this is actually, you know, a social problem. I think you know what I'm asking, but it's just, it's hard because you don't want to like, as a person who is non-disabled, you know, who who would I be to ever challenge how somebody kind of like views their disability if, you know, it's not actually the one that experts say is the most, is the most helpful. How do you think about that, Kelsey? Like, how do you, how do you decide when you're going to be like, hey, actually, this mm-hmm. is, this is an area where we need to talk about this among ourselves. Yeah. So I'm just going to, Explain the situation. Well, Sarah's are probably like, what? <laughs> what, man, what are you getting at? Uh, so there is a stereotype within the disability advocacy community, and I'd be very interested to hear your experience slash take on this, Dr. Kaday, um, of the hashtag special needs mom. So it's the parent, the blogger who has a child with disabilities and creates an entire persona all about that. And there is kind of a running joke, especially within like the congenital disability community, that like one of the most detrimental figures to progress that disabled people are pushing for is the hashtag special needs mom. Because often what they portray is like, oh, it's so hard to have a child with special needs. And they paint themselves as overly heroic for having a child with disabilities and like daring to love for them and advocate for them. And it's like, well, that's 
kind of what you sign up for as a parent. And I mean, so when <laughs> I made a TikTok about this, some hashtag special needs parents accounts got a hold of it, pushed it out to 2 million people, and I got about 100 threatening messages every minute for three hours. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. And it's also why every single time I do an actual session, like obviously that's social media, things are going to spiral really fast. What happens often is the defenses rise up, right? So here's the deal is like people with disabilities need to be seen as experts, like Dr. Kade was saying, in issues surrounding disability. The anthem of disabled people for half a century, if not longer, has been nothing about us without us, which means that when, when decisions are being made, and when advocacy is happening surrounding disability, people with disabilities need to be centered in that, not people who are disability adjacent. And the analogy that I always use is imagine a dad who loves his daughter. Is he going to have to advocate for her at times? Yeah, for sure. All parents need to. Is, does he love her immensely? 100%. Is he going to know some of the issues that she deals with? Hopefully, Yeah. But is he ever going to experience sexism, misogyny, the patriarchy, like gaps in income like other adult women will? Absolutely not. So is there space where we need to be listening to the types of issues that people who have children with disabilities experience? Yes, because that is part of how we can like, ex like really expand the social model and make sure that society is set up for all people because the, the issues that people who are parents of disabled children deal with, those issues are there because of the way society is set up primarily, right? If there was so much great care that was set up for them, a lot of this would be a lot easier. So it's, you know, people who are adults with disabilities have been advocating for that for literally, at, I mean, over half a century, probably a whole century, if not longer. They've been saying society needs to change. And here's the deal is like, Amanda, you and I have talked about this before. There's something called the curb cut effect, right? So when the ADA was put into law before that, society didn't have to be accessible. After that is when we got those little divots in the sidewalk so that people could bring their wheelchairs or other mobility aids onto the sidewalk. And now do you know who the biggest users of those are? Bicyclists, strollers, delivery people, like People who don't use these things, like it benefits or who didn't need those things, it actually benefits them. And so disabled people, that's why disability justice is so important because you have to listen to the voices of those who are most affected. So not necessarily me, but people who are black, queer, also disabled, any, the most people who are going to be most affected by ableism. So those, it'll be people who have intersecting identities are going to be seen as the experts. That's why it's so important to me to lift up their voices because their experiences are going to benefit me. I'm going to have that curb cut effect affect me. I'm going to trust them that what they're saying is going to help me too. So just like sometimes I need to shut up and listen to other people who have those intersection ideas, so do people who are just disability adjacent. And so do people who are not even disability adjacent. And sometimes, like, I mean, I open up every session that I actually do with a breathing exercise because if talking about this isn't going to make you uncomfortable a little bit, then we're not talking about the right things because 90% of companies have some form of DEI, 4% include disability within them. That is horrible. That means that not enough people are talking about this. You need to get uncomfortable with this. And I'm 100% okay with you being uncomfortable. I have no, no beef with that. 
as long as I'm not being disrespectful and saying you're a piece of shit for doing this, I have no problem making you uncomfortable. Also, <laughs> I do think some people are pieces of shit. Like if they a couple are. people send me death threats, I kind of think you're a piece of shit. But mm-hmm. um, you know what I mean? Like as long as I think people often – it's kind of like tone policing, which I know happens in the black community all the time. Special needs – hashtag special needs parents do that to disabled people all the time and it's infuriating. So that's kind of my Yeah, I mean, you you really cleared something up for me because I realized I asked in my question, I was definitely – and maybe you can both speak to this. When I said disability community, I was including that person's parents, that child's mm-hmm. parents. Or I think he's an adult, that adult's parents. And that's not actually – who speaks on behalf of the community? This this isn't the well, they do. That he they has. shouldn't. <laughs> they do well. Exactly. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? They have compassion, empathy, understanding. I think that is important. But it's really how are they accomplices, not allies? How are they accomplices? Meaning, and I say this all the time: the goal is to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So when I talk about dismantling white supremacy, because my love language is dismantling white supremacy, <laughs> also the title of my book that I'm writing. Oh, cool. Um, thank you. It is. Because white supremacy also includes ableism, yeah, homophobia, xenophobia, you know, transphobia, the list goes on and on, right? And so getting back to your original question, if I can sit here in an insane amount of pain and dismantle white supremacy and be a role model and hold people accountable, call them in, not canceling them, call them in to an opportunity for accountability and action and pain, fresh out of the emergency room, non-disabled people can show up and advocate for disabled folks. They can advocate for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color. They can do that, right? And so if they want to be inspired for that, sure, fine, you know, whatever. I'll let them have that. But also to Kelsey's point, let's talk about COVID. We are currently in a pandemic. And a pandemic is something that I've studied in school, so it's kind of cool that it's happening. But... It also sucks ass, right, that we're in this pandemic because what disabled people have been asking for for years is happening in the workplace, working remotely, having more flexibility, whatever this work-life balance is. I don't believe in that. I believe in work-life harmony um, because we have ups and downs. We can't say like, oh, today I'm going to work out. My body may not show up, so I may not be able to do that. And we know we have to um, adjust to that. And then there's this thing called long covid which sucks for sure. But now there's more discussion around how do we handle people with long COVID, which for some may be a temporary or permanent disability. Like Kelsey said, everyone has opportunity to be disabled, right? That can happen. And so because of long COVID, people are looking into more long-term care and support only because of non-disabled people. Infuriating. So COVID's like this bittersweet thing because people who've never been in our situation before, like getting a taste of what it's like to constantly be in pain or not be able to breathe or maybe had a stroke because of COVID. And now they, you know, whatever that thing may be, now they're providing more compassion for us. It's just, it's just like the curb cut effect. As you were talking, I was thinking earlier when you both were talking about your experiences in emergency room, you know, something I thought about was just an episode of the day that I just listened to about women, you know, being told you are not sick enough. You're not mm-hmm. close enough to death. Go home. And I think that's, that is um, an experience that people with disabilities have been having for, for a long time. So to pivot to our audience questions, uh, you both mentioned uh, having been bullied, having been exposed to bullying of, of peers with disabilities. So somebody asked the question, how do I teach my kids about disabilities in the right way? 
I think what's really important and parents forget about this all the time. What are your kids watching? What are your kids reading? Right. Like, are they watching shows that have people who don't look like and live like them? If they're white kids or they're watching shows with black kids in them, you know, if they're non-disabled, are they reading books that have stories of non-disabled folks in them? Are they having on the spot education when they see someone who is disabled say like, yeah, some people have assistive devices. Some people we all look different and something that is celebrated and not viewed as something negative. We aren't racist as people. You are taught how to be racist. You are taught how to be discriminatory from your caretakers, whether in the system, guardians, parents, grandparents. And so it's making sure the parents not only are exposing them to different things, but are also role modeling the behavior. They aren't making fun of people with disabilities. They aren't talking negatively about black people, right? Those points of intersectionality are in there. And that is literally what they can do for free and within their own system of the toys, the books, the videos, the shows that they buy, download, stream. No, I was just going to echo that and also say like, yeah, what are they watching? What are you exposing them to? I totally agree. hundred percent. That's always what I say. You know, oftentimes people will point, especially like, I mean, I just view so much on TikTok, right? So you'll see videos of kids like, oh, pointing and staring. There's one that went viral. And it's like, oh my gosh, cute. They're so curious. They just want to know like what happened to his legs. And it's like, well, that's really inappropriate because would you encourage your child to go up to somebody who's a different gender and be like, why do you look like that? Would you encourage them to go up to somebody who's a different race and ask them why their skin is a different color? Of course not. Like that's a macroaggression. And like you yeah. said, that macroaggressions are okay. Right. Yeah. And also, why are they curious? Why are they curious? Because disabled people make up the largest minority group in the world. So if they haven't been exposed to that, that's not curiosity in your child. That's failure in your parenting to expose them to things. And I'm sorry, some people are going to get upset at that, but it is. Like, I mean, all parents make mistakes. And if you're not exposing your kids to people who look different than them, that's a big mistake. And that has to change. And there's tons of resources out there. TV is getting there, but there's lots of books that have been written by disabled authors. There's a lot of children's books that have been written by disabled authors that are out there. And the other thing that I would say is also to educate yourself so that you're not encouraging them to go up to people and ask them, right? If you had participated in any sort of like allyship, accomplice, like programming that you would like educated yourself in, you would know that telling them to ask that person is inappropriate and it's violating medical privacy. So that would be the other thing that I would say. Like you have to be ready yourself to explain these things to your kids. So you need to make that your goal and your mission to listen to other people, to really educate yourself. If you can't say it to your boss, like if you can be like, hey, that's actually a macrogression, how are you going to explain it to a kid? Because a kid, you have to have so much more like, I mean, there's like the term, explain it to me like I'm five, right? Like you have to know it so well up here that you can put it in very simple terms to explain to a child. So you're not going to get it unless. But I would say it's the same when parents have to explain um, LGBTQ plus relationships. And their kids, you know, their friends who have parents who have two dads, maybe, right? Or two non-binary parents, whatever it may be. It's the same thing. It's a transferable skill set. And it's really important to note what Kelsey is saying. Around 7% of people in the U.S. identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. We have, again, 13, 20%, depending on what stats we're looking at, of people with disabilities. Yet we see distinct differences because it's more comfortable to explain a gay couple 
than to explain someone with disabilities. Yeah, and we also I mean, yeah. see that in our Pride Month too. Pride Month, LGBTQ Pride Month is in June. We're in July. We don't see logos change for us. We don't see a whole, you know, funding in a parade. We don't see special swag that's sold at a store to fundraise. We don't see any of that. But we have, we're, we are around more. There's more of a presence of us. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying that, I, I feel like a lot of what was behind getting a lot of gay rights is that people said, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with being gay. And it seems like there's no, we don't have nationwide buy-in that there's nothing wrong with being disabled because of all these biases that you've, that you've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that goes back to kind of that same topic, which is what I was talking about when those hashtag special needs parents got a hold of my content is like, the exact thing that I was addressing was there was, the parent was saying that it's Disability Pride Month, but that her child doesn't have a disability and, it, and that he has endless abilities. And phrases like that imply that disabled people don't. And it's so important that we talk about that and say, like, actually, this is really harmful. This is really bad to, like, have that conversation out there that says actually disabled people aren't capable of things. We have to have two different labels. Disabled people aren't capable. This specific person who has a disability is, you know? Which is why I hate able-bodied. Because, same. right? Because I have the abilities to do things. It may be the same as you. It may be different. Or I may not be able to do it because of, of my health, but I have ability to do stuff. So that's why non-disabled is a, a better use. So if non-disabled is a better use, I wonder what you think about people wielding that anyway. You know, sometimes I'll people are like, oh, I like, you know, I'll just have friends that are, you know, joking about working out. It's like, oh, I'm like blah, 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 able-bodied this, and I still can't do that. So I feel like even if you replace non-disabled, I feel like it's it still can kind of come up in in kind of a negative context. So the reason why I personally like non-disabled is that it brings disabled disability into the conversation. So you aren't going to, if someone says, well, I'm non-disabled, okay, we're, we're part of the conversation, but it's also a check for them to say like, oh, I am privileged enough to not have disability and what comes along with it. Again, disability is not a bad word. I'm proud to be disabled. That's why I have Disability Pride Month. And so I think that is the self-check that's in there. Also, let's say at a work meeting, you're saying, okay, well, I'm not disabled. So um, as a result of me being non-disabled, what does this mean for people who have disability to be included in this event, this gathering, this meeting, right? Mm -hmm. So many companies, and I said this earlier, so many companies have all hands meetings, which is an ableist term. It could be an all company, all staff, all department, all team, all whatever other name. But my hands dislocates. I'm not going to give you my hands, but I can give you these thoughts, right, that are in there. But these very meetings, they don't have closed captioning on. You bring in a, a, a speaker. If you have, you know, people who um, have different levels of hearing, they may not have an interpreter who's there, right? Because, again, it's like, oh, we gave you the chair or we gave you the desk or the headphones or whatever you needed to do the job. So we did it, not forgetting that they still have to be included in other parts of the workplace. So by saying non-disabled is a way to show that inclusion and get to mm -hmm. what Kelsey said. And we do this as a diversity firm. We talk about disability. How does that show up in your application? How do you celebrate that? To say that you celebrate people with disabilities and you'll accommodate them in the interview process when they're hired. And it's not a negative thing. Totally. You know? I mean, I use that term all the time and I talk about it on a lot of my TikToks and stuff too about why I use non-disabled versus able-bodied. 
And I, I don't know if you – have you received pushback, Dr. Kade? Because I have from people who are in the disability community that are, like, actually – my like, for instance, I have a TBI from my car accident when I was hit by a car. And I'll say that's, that's, my, that's my brain. It affects how I think, not how my body functions. And mm-hmm. people will push back and they'll say, no, but your brain is part of your body. So it counts. And so I'm just wondering if you've ever received pushback from people with – like, people who are – who have TBIs or – similar invisible disabilities that I would just classify as non-disabled. Have you received pushback like that? I, I received a little bit of that, right? Because I think the other thing to keep in mind, intersectionality, it's how someone identifies. If they identified as non-disabled with having a TBI, that's what they want. And that's okay. Yeah. So I leave it at that. Yeah. I personally have no problem being disabled. You know, if you if someone wants to include major depressive disorder or bipolar into being disabled, I think all of that is fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, I think there's power in talking about disability, because if we aren't talking about it and for some folks who are saying, like, oh, I'm not disabled, but they have a disability, they're upholding values of white supremacy because they want to normalize. They want to be part of the dominant culture. They want to be in a position where, like, they're OK but in order to change the shift where being disabled is as welcoming as, you know, a gay couple, we have to be more vocal about it. And we have to hold the systems in place accountable from ADA, American with Disabilities Act, to what happens in our workplaces, what happens at restaurants, what happens wherever we are. Yeah. Um, two more from our audience, if you have time. So sure. this one's pretty broad, and I'm sure you both have different answers. Like you said, I mean, 20% of Americans have a disability. So the microaggressions people get are going to be pretty broad, but are there some some common ones? Uh, maybe maybe Kelsey, do you want to start, and then maybe Dr. Kaday can can mirror if she's had any of those and what her unique ones are and the intersections. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to detail I would it. Love to. So, uh, like I said, I have two businesses. One is a fitness one, and. I got into fitness because, I mean, I was a dancer growing up. Dancing was like the – my dance teachers were the only people who, like, were like – they they modeled the social model. where They were like, hmm, this doesn't quite work for you. How can we do this in a way that does so that everyone can experience this? And I had great success in it. Um, and then I went I, – I hated gym class at the same time. Like, the only class that I almost failed every single year was gym class because I would forge notes – and I, would, I mean, honestly, I would just capitalize on the fact that men have no idea what happens with periods. Yeah, yeah. Just, and I would I'm just still on my period. <laughs> yeah, for like three months straight. Yeah. And eventually at one of my conferences, my uh, gym teacher was like, is she okay? And my parents were like, what are you talking about? And then they found that I'd been forging notes. But I hated, I hated fitness. I hated exercising because it like made me feel so singled out. So when I got into the fitness industry, like my goal was to like – how can we make this accessible for all people? And instead of being like, oh, cool, that's cool that fitness can be accessible for everyone. Like, it's so inspiring that you still come here and you can, like, figure out these modifications. And I'm like, I'm literally just doing a plank on my forearms instead of my hands. How is that inspirational? Like, maybe we could make this for all people, right? Maybe we could normalize having modifications and exercise for all people all the time. So, I mean, that's one that I would get all the time, especially, and it's really hard when you're like working in a professional setting, like there'd be wait lists for my class classes and like people would just, I couldn't tell them like, Hey, fuck off. That's ableist. But like at the same time, you're like, how do you say? "Mm." Yeah. So that was a big one that I used to get a lot. I mean, now I do kind of shelter myself because I am 
running my own businesses. So people get what they get with me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I would say the other one was oftentimes like the, I mean, if I was, when I was getting married, a lot of people would be like, oh, wow. Okay. Wow. You're married. And like, I'm like, yeah, I am. And I mean, it's interesting too, because like Dr. Gaudet was saying, we don't see people who are disabled and in meaningful relationships. I remember when I was little, I was a bride multiple years in a row for Halloween because I was like, that's (laughs) the most fantasy level thing I could imagine for myself. And so it was like surreal when I was actually going through the process of like, oh my gosh, somebody, somebody thinks my cute little disabled hand is actually cute. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. And like, you know, the, yeah, it was just wild for me. So those are two like, I guess, kind of recent ones that people think that they're being like, oh, that's mm-hmm. cool. That's amazing. That's inspiring. I'm like, why is it? Would it be, would it be inspiring? Yeah. I'm a fitness instructor. I yeah. can do a plan. Who happens yeah. to be married. Like, I yeah. mean, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, the, a lot of inspirational stuff happens. And I'm, again, like I said earlier, I'm just living my life. Um, but one of the common microaggressions I get is parking in VIP ADA, right? So me and my blue placard parking up front at Target. Um, and I've had multiple people pull over and tell me I can't park there. Give me mean looks. There was one guy who saw me parking, drove one way, turned around, got out of his car while I was walking. Cause I was walking to meet a friend to walk on this like flat trail thing. And he said, you're parked in uh, ADA parking spot. He said handicapped. That's we don't say that anymore. And uh, I was like, uh huh. And he was like, uh, yeah, I just want to let you know you're parked. And I said, yeah, I'm repeated. It. I am disabled. Yeah, but you're you're parked. And I said, I'm disabled. And I am always for a teaching moment. Because if you're going to come to me, then I get to say, okay, well, this is a wonderful time for you to learn that um, disabilities are visible and invisible. And what you can't see right now is that I'm out of breath. And that my pain is searing down my chest and my arm. But if it makes you feel better, just know that I'm in pain right now and I'm deserving to be in that spot. And so that's where it typically comes up. Um, it also happens at the airport. Um, I used to travel a lot more before the, the pandemic. And um, again, like I said, people would not believe my disability at all. Wouldn't believe it. Um, so even when I get like wheelchair service for airports are really long. I always am in tachycardia at the airport, which is a really fast heart rate. Um, it would take forever for someone to pick me up because they're looking for someone who is deserving of the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so, no urgency. yeah. And then I think the last one is, you know, even sometimes for like uh, clients, it's like, Oh my God, you're like in so much pain. I don't know. I don't know how you do it. How do you do it? It's like, well, I got to pay bills. I have employees. I have, you know, I have to keep things going. And then it's like, I don't know how you do it, but also can you do this today for me right now? <sighs> Yeah. I saw you just got out of the ER, but can you give this to me right now? You know, so um, and I view that also um, as a microaggression and then, you know, wanting to have a kid by myself, microaggressions galore, because I'm a single mother by choice. That's a category. Um, so it's like, how long have you and your partner been trying? It says on the form, single mother by choice. Right. Again, with the genetics testing. Well, you have to make sure. No, nope, I'm fine with these things. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's just sound it's just exhausting. I can't even just go drive your car or get get on a plane. 
The last question from an audience member um, that I'd love for you two to chime in on is, how do I support a friend who has recently become physically disabled? Is there anything in particular someone did for you when you were going through this, good and bad? Talk to us. You know, I've had friends show up, but a lot of friends don't know what to do. And so what I have shared is that one, when someone says, like, you know, what's going on, I tell them exactly what I have and I ask them to Google it. So the questions you're asking me are for what I need, having the understanding so I don't have to take the time and energy to explain the million things that I have. So there's that. The other thing I um, want to recommend for, you know, friends or someone who's, uh, who's disabled is to write down a list of things you need. I call it a support list because like I have brain fog, I have fatigue, I have all these things. When someone's like, well, how can I support you? Because that's the other question friends should ask, friends and family, how can I support you? Then you can go to your support list on the phone to say like, can you order a meal for me tonight? Can you come to this appointment with me? Can you pick up groceries? Can you just sit with me? Can you rub my, whatever you feel you need to get to whatever semblance of joy um, is needed. But do not disappear. Do not say, I'm so sorry. Do not say, I don't know what to do. Because there's plenty of things that can be done, which is listening and being there for someone at the bare minimum. Yeah, I would echo all of that a hundred times over. I would also add that there are so many resources out there that disabled people have created about like how to ease the emotional labor of disabled people. Um, whether that's educating yourself, like Dr. Gaudet said, about what what different diagnoses are or also like what are the organizations nearby that are support organizations like how can you how can you educate yourself so that that person doesn't have to explain it to you right because for instance with a tbi like having to explain it to 100 people after it happened while i'm also like i literally can't look at a screen like when it first happened I, i couldn't look at a screen for more than an hour at a time without getting a migraine that would knock me out for two days So like me having to explain it to you is actually going to make me feel worse. So the more things that you can do on your end, like you're sometimes people will reach out intending to be well-meaning like, hey, I want to learn about this. Like, okay, so learn about it. Go for it. Right. Sounds great. Like like Google's for. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is subscribe to disabled patreons like there are people that are doing this work and guess what they're like me and dr kaday who like this is our job this is our job like if you want to learn there are a very affordable patreons out there that you well, that's like explaining it is literally a full-time job because yeah. the only way you two are able to do that all the time yes. is by making a living yeah from it. so i mean it's just like unpaid emotional labor is ridiculous for any any human being from a marginalized community. So if you're asking that person like over and over and over again, what can I do? How can I help? Yeah. It would be so much more helpful to be like, hey, you go do your work and then message them and say, I'd like to order you a meal or bring some food over. Would that be helpful? Yeah. That's so that's it takes that weight off them. So then it's just one less thing that they're planning. The other thing that I would recommend when I I started this with a couple people when I was hospitalized for um, a couple of suicide attempts because of my serious depression. And when I came out, one of my friends created a standing appointment with me every Wednesday. Didn't matter what we did. We could just hang out and sit on the couch or we could go for a walk. It didn't have to be something that cost money. For an hour, we'd hang out. And 
if you can set that up in like a care network type of way, whether that is just doing that or doing something regularly, maybe it's once a month you're going to go over and help your friend unload their dishwasher. It could be the most simple thing. Do you know what I mean? And like having it there so that that person doesn't have to do the mental gymnastics of figuring out how can I get all of these needs met and being reliable, not being flaky. Because if you're flaky, that's actually going to cause more of an issue. So don't say you'll do it unless you're going to do it. So be reliable, but standing appointments are really powerful. Honestly, it saved my life because it was just like, you know what? I don't want to be here right now. I'm in so much pain emotionally, physically. Everything's horrible. The world is going to shit. But on Wednesday, I'm hanging out with Lucia and Lucia's going to be there and it's going to be okay. Like you can be that person for people. So I would say, yeah, educate yourself, but then also like take that initiative and do things that are actually helpful and stay consistent with it. Because when it comes to disability, sometimes it can be short term, but most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's long term the rest of your life. And so like, you have to set yourself up to be like to be there for people for, I mean, not that you have to be with that one person forever, but if you really want to take this seriously, like set yourself up for the long term and be really communicative about what you can and can't do. Yeah. We've spent so much of this episode of you both talking about how traumatizing and triggering and exhausting it can be to ask for help. So to whatever extent you can as an ally or accomplice to, you know, remove that factor to be able to just offer it sounds is amazing advice. Thank you both so much for being so generous with your time. We don't take for granted how precious your time is. It means it means the world to us. Dr. Kadeh, you have like the best the best team out there. I think they're awesome. I, I mean, it's it sounds like it has to run that smoothly for you, but you make you guys are incredible. So so appreciate your time as well, Kelsey. We have to have you back. We didn't get through nearly as many, nearly all of the We'd questions. We'd love to be back. But yeah. I think it's important to to share, and I feel confident speaking on behalf of myself and Kelsey, that these conversations are really important. So thank you for giving us the platform yeah. to have these conversations and also to you know continue it. So thank you, Amanda, and thank you, um, Millie, for bringing this to a great platform. Thank you. I know our audience is just going to is going to reach out to you and of course you guys both do this for a living. So if you have companies that are not great on this issue and you want to make some recommendations, then you will have them. Well, when we promote this episode, we'll also like tag you all, link everything you're up to. Thank yeah, you so thank much. And thank you for giving me a friend. Kelsey, yeah. 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 I follow, I'm going to DM you. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. gonna be great. We're going who knows, maybe they'll reach out and they'll get both of us. So, yes. <laughs> I mean, dream team, dream team. <laughs> That is our show. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.